G'day everyone, I'm Luke Tipple and welcome to the Shark Week podcast. This is where you get exclusive access to the stars of Shark Week and learn from the top scientific minds on the planet. I'm talking to Jimmy Partington and Michael Harris, stars of the Shark Week show Great White Serial Killer Extinction. Welcome to the Daily Bite, Jimmy and Mike. Jimmy, how you doing? Hi, yeah, good good to uh, meet you, Luke, and uh, thanks for having me, mate. Yeah, welcome. Coming to us from the UK, hey? That's right, yeah. That's why I got my beanie on. It's a little bit cooler out this part of the world. Uh, and Mike, where are you right now? Uh, Morrow Bay, Central California. Sweet. Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate both your time. Let's get into the show because there's some issues going on with otters and great white sharks. So perhaps, Mike, you can set up the scenario and tell us a little about the otters, the conservation status, and, and what's happening with the white sharks. Right. So otters, uh, the population in California has been slow to recover. We're sitting at about 3,000 animals currently. And about early 2000s, we started to see a very significant increase in a cause of mortality related to bites from white sharks. And this has continued to increase to the point where it's having a population level impact. Uh, It's become the single biggest source of mortality as these two species uh, recover from various uh, things that have influenced their their population status. We're now just trying to understand some of the dynamics that might be coming into into play, influencing the numbers impacting otters. So uh, perhaps you could give us kind of just a a brief history of otters and where they are right now, because you say that they've recovered slowly. So what were they recovering from? Sea otters historically ranged throughout the entire North Pacific Rim. Uh, The fur trade, eliminated otters from much of their historic range. Uh, Back in the early 1900s, there was as few as 50 otters remaining in California when the first uh, levels of protection were put in place. So it's from that small population that the current population has recovered from. The Department of Fish and Wildlife has monitored the population intensively, specifically looking at causes of mortality. We've been collecting carcasses now for over 50 years. Shark bite has always been a small component of the cause of mortality um, that we found, but historically it was maybe 8-10% of the cases that we would cover, we'd find evidence of shark bite. Um, now, 2020, we're looking at somewhere between 50-60% of the cases that we're recovering are bitten by sharks, and we're recovering somewhere in the neighborhood of 450 cases a year. So it's become quite a significant source of mortality, and we're just trying to understand what are some of the underlying dynamics that are uh, influencing this. So if you're saying that there's 450 cases a year, but there's only like 3,000 individuals, I mean, is the population in in rapid decline then, or are they keeping up with it with birth rates? Uh, Population has been fairly stagnant uh, since the increase in white shark mortality. We've had a few periods where we've seen some small population increase, but not what we would like to see, what we would expect to see, and actually what we saw prior to this source of mortality becoming so uh, prominent. Where, uh, in trying to understand the range and then, you know, where that coincides with white sharks, where Jimmy can probably help us out, um, where should we be finding otters in an ideal world without fur trade and everything else? How far north, how far south? Uh, well, they range from as far south as Baja, Mexico, all the way up the, the entire uh, Pacific coast into Alaska, out the Aleutians and across into uh, Russia and Japan. Uh, the fur trade 
eliminated large sections of the population. So now we had remnant populations that set the stage for recovery. California right now, we the current range is roughly Pigeon Point up near between Santa Cruz and Half Moon Bay and uh, Point Conception or Gaviota down in uh, Santa Barbara County. So, so yeah. a very small, small portion of the, yeah. the historic range uh, has been reoccupied. And so now you're talking about some fairly large hotspots in terms of great white sharks and where they're ranging and stuff. Jimmy, you work a lot with the populations of sharks up and down this coastline. Perhaps you can sort of cover the kind of range and the sort of migrations that we'd be seeing. Yeah, well, all around the Pacific, you know, which has been something that we've discovered really from what we've been looking at for the last 10 years. You know, we've, we've thought that these areas where these sharks were populating were very kind of small areas, but we've now found out through you know, tagging the sharks that they do these vast migrations. So all of those areas, you know, that we were talking about there where those otters are, are now, you know, frequented by white sharks. It's known now that the population of white sharks is coming back in, in especially in Southern California, mm. right in these areas where these otters are being found. On one side, it's, it's a good thing because it's, it's say that there's a good ecosystem out there, but it might not be so good for the otters at this particular point with the balance of nature. So that's that's what we were trying to you know find out with this uh, with this documentary. Perhaps you could uh, tell us the the kind of seasonality because there is a regular migration that you know for example you're working Guadalupe takes advantage of to go down and see them when they're down there. So when are they kind of ranging up around the areas where the otters might be there? Well, the sharks, I mean, across the broad are, are, are there all year round. You know, somewhere along the Pacific, they don't all travel. You know, on the same migration route. So at any one time, there could be a great white shark. You know, in that specific stretch of water. But yeah, you're right. They do go and do these general migrations. So, for example, you mentioned Guadalupe. There, the sharks turn up there typically around August, stay till around December. Um, but then some of these big females, some of these tagged sharks out there, once they leave Guadalupe, they've, been, they've gone all the way to Hawaii and then they've gone all as far north in California as Oregon, down to Southern California through Baja, Sea Cortez. So that whole coastline, you know. Yeah. And, and you said that you've uh, spoken to some fishermen or some conservationists in Baja that have seen or at least have evidence of the otters down in that area, but they're no longer there. Is that right? Well, that, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, I was dubious, you know, I like to see proof for myself, you know, in general. But we had, as we started to look into this a little bit more and dive into it and talk to more people, it became apparent that they used to be down there. They used to be very far south. We actually came across a few carcasses or skeletons, I should say, of people that had collected, you know, fossils of the bones of some of these otters down there. And they were known in these southern waters. But for whatever reason, now they don't seem to be there. So that's, again, one of the things that we were trying to get to the bottom of. You know? yeah. And the kelp as well, which we do know that the otters use, you know, for their own protection in the water. You know, there was a lot of more kelp down in the, down in the Southern California as well than there is these days. Hmm. Mike, perhaps you could shed some light on what the bites or attacks are looking like. I think a lot of people, when you start talking about white truck bites, they envision quite a, a aggressive interaction. And majority of the cases we see, uh, we classify as an investigative bite. Um, there's no soft tissue removed. There's no evidence of second bites. Sometimes there's not even evidence of a, the upper and lower jaw 
both making contact with the animal. But otters don't have that thick layer of blubber that pinnipeds do. Mm. So any small break in the skin penetrating wound can lead to death. Some of the detailed necropsy work we've done, we've actually found that over half of the fresh dead otters that we examine, they're dying of secondary bacterial infection, which kind of gives you another sense that these are investigative bites and the level of interaction that's taking place where the otters are surviving this interaction and then developing these bacterial infections in these wounds and, and succumbing to, to the infection as a, a cause of mortality secondary to the bite. Is there any uh, data or have you been able to determine if that bacterial infection is coming perhaps directly from the shark bite or from, you know, from the local environment afterwards just infecting the wound? So far, the work we've done all indicates that it, it's background bacterial infection. We haven't done anything where we're, we found culture in these wounds and been able to connect it directly to sick bacterial growth in the, on the teeth or in the mouth of a white shark. Yeah, so it's not like a Komodo dragon or something where they'll just bite something and, you know, right, the right. actual bite and the poison or bacteria will affect them. With it being such an investigatory bite, why are the otters so vulnerable? What is it about their behavior that makes them vulnerable? They spend quite a bit of time on the surface. They spend most of their life in the water. Otters will haul out. We have areas along the California coast where large sections of the population are out in open water. The assumption is this open water habitat is likely a a big area where we're seeing these interactions occur. They present a silhouette on the surface that the sharks are investigating. And again, that investigative bite is... Maybe not that severe, but enough to kill the otter. So how big are we talking about? How big do these otters get? Uh, Adult male in California typically is, say, 50, 60 pounds. We have, of course, have some larger adult males in areas where there's a lot of good food resource. We're seeing this in a wide range of age groups. So it's not just the adult otters. We're seeing this in, in, in young juvenile otters, adult otters as well. So it's... uh Fairly small animals, but they are presenting that silhouette in yeah. that open water environment that we think is attracting the, the shark's attention. So basically, they're being very opportunistic in looking even for the smallest opportunity to feed versus just going after the real big ones. That's a good question. Some of the work we're doing is trying to understand some of the dynamic there. Is it that we now have an increase in overlap of habitat use with the growing population of white shark? Are they moving into new areas? Are there more white sharks in the area? Is there a younger demographic of white shark that may be more prone to doing these investigative bites on targets that they're not familiar with? That's why we're trying to reach out to some of the shark researchers and see what kind of information they can uh, help us to really pull this story together. Yeah. Okay, so Jimmy, um, whose brilliant idea was a ghost raft? Um, well, it was kind of a combined effort, really. Um, but you know, there was a lot. There was a lot of backstory to it, and you know, what obviously I was never attempting to to be an otter or anything like that. But um, <laughs> from what Mike has said, you know, it, very apparent that sharks like things on the surface. Mm. So we wanted to try and find a way that we could get out there safely. But at the same time, you know, take away the element which you, when you normally go with a cage or if you're going to send something out like some sort of camera, it's it's really hard to then try and get the same behavior from the sharks. 
um, that you're the more natural behavior that way. Mm-hmm. So by going into the raft and it, with it being completely see-through, that allowed the sharks to behave hopefully as close as they, they might do to thinking that, you know, I was the real deal. Mm. And by me being able to be out there and not just sending out a camera, being able to see it with my eyes, I was able, from, from my knowledge of white sharks, to be able to see behaviors that just wouldn't be possible before. So yeah. that was the idea behind it. And uh, yeah, it worked. It worked <laughs> because uh, the sharks came very, very close to me. A number of sharks around me, half a dozen sharks at one point. And uh, they, weren't, they weren't shy about, you know, <laughs> letting me be known that this was their stretch of water. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it was an amazing experience, Luke, you know, as you can imagine. I think you uh, you actually managed to achieve the bet that we used, always used to have on the, the back deck of the Islander, sitting there for hours a day watching sharks. And, and I'm sure you do this too, just, you know, bantering back and forth about, you know, whether you could make it to shore or not. <laughs> oh, yeah. A trip doesn't go, doesn't go by without someone asking that question, you know. But for me, it was absolutely fascinating because personally – I like to get as close to the sharks as possible, but obviously remain safe as well. So this was just the ideal platform that could allow me to do that. You'll see in the show, there's a, there's a number of times I actually go out on the raft. One time I'm lying on my front and then I spin around and, and lie on my back at one point. And that was to really see the sharks would know if I was on my back, if I had my back turned. Because uh, you hear all these things, you know, about keeping eye contact with great whites. So important. It makes, it's the, it makes a difference. That was certainly the case. When I was on my front and I could see the sharks, I think they knew it. But as soon as I mm. flipped around onto my back, they became a lot more confident and a lot more bold. And I was definitely more vulnerable at that point. Yeah. It actually uh, it made me think about back down in Guadalupe. Um, the closest call I've ever had with a shark was when we were... We were shooting a free diving documentary down there and yeah. there was seven or eight great whites in the water. I spotted four or five of them from the surface before I hopped in. So I jumped in on tanks, no cage or anything. And I just happened to look under the boat, you know, clearing look under the boat. And there was a, a good size 15, 16 foot female, full charge, tail flapping just straight up at me. I'm like, and I... I'm convinced that the only reason I'm here today without over-dramatizing it, but that wasn't a pretty full-on attack was because I had drilled into my mind, look at them, swim at them, look at them, swim at them. So I managed to very quickly just flip over, look at the shark, and I probably got two fin strokes in. I was really kind of still in a ball at that point. But it just gave it that doubt enough to think, okay, this thing sees me, maybe it's not prey, and it, it deflected from me. It it was a couple of feet away from my yeah. leg. I was like... You know, you, you okay, could, let's get to work. <laughs> well, you could be having a good, great day out there, you know, and it's obviously an amazing experience what you're talking about up until that point, you know, yeah. and things can just go from zero to 10 pretty, quick, pretty quickly yeah. with great ones. I, I didn't realize how tiring it was mentally for me, you know, mm. until the end of the day. I was absolutely exhausted because I realized that when I was on this thing and I was on it for, you know, a number of hours, the concentration level that I needed, you know, my head was spinning around, pivoting, keeping eye contact with them. Because as soon as you just drop your guard, that's when your 15 footer yeah. <laughs> decides, hey, this is my opportunity. And certainly for the moments that I was lying on my back, there were lots of thoughts were going through my mind. I tried to just kind of blank them out, <laughs> just hope for the best. But there is no doubt in my mind that, that, we did, uh, that we did prove that whole eye contact thing. How many other ways can you get a chance to do that? You just can't do that from a, from a cage because, yeah. as you know, when you're in a cage, 
the behaviors of the sharks are completely different. It just took that, that element of the bars away and in turn then the sharks responded yeah. and uh, showed us how scary or how intimidating it must be for one of these poor little otters. With the otters, I mean, uh, Michael, that seems to make a lot of sense where, you know, the sharks are really just going after things that aren't looking at them, that look vulnerable, that, that investigate. Is there any uh, incidents that you know of, it might be hard to prove, but where sharks have gone after otters that are, that are feeding or perhaps looking at them? We do have some data to suggest otters have been bitten during feeding bouts and feeding dives, but we don't have anything to answer that question about whether there's been otters that have seen the shark approach and that that's caused any change in the, the interaction. Yeah. There's, uh, there's more and more data coming out now showing that, you know, typically we've thought of great whites as hunting on the surface, you know, ambush predators coming up, hitting things on the surface that aren't seeing them or, you know, chasing them. But there's more and more data down in Guadalupe and all over the world where sharks are feeding midwater column and the bottom and even using the bottom as, as cover for their hunting activities. So they're a much more dynamic animal than we've thought of before even to the point that they're hunting in kelp forests. Uh, do you know anything about that? Have you seen that in your area? Uh, interesting question. There are some folks that do think that kelp canopy does provide some type of refuge for sea otters. And I think that might be true for otters that are resting, essentially still in the kelp canopy, because that canopy does essentially hide their silhouette. But Animals that are moving about in the canopy do present a target, a visual target that I think sharks can key in on, even in the thickest of canopies. There was a group that specifically looked at stranding rates of live otters in areas of kelp and no kelp. And there was some conclusions there that suggest that the, the canopy does maybe provide some type of refuge. Yeah. So to, to test the theory that the canopy is providing refuge, Jimmy and the guys set up a uh, sacrificial otter to take a hit and put it out with a bunch of great white sharks. Jimmy, you've got a, uh, a rather cute decoy. Tell me about the, uh, the dummy otter and what you guys did there in uh, sacrificing it. <sighs> well, well the, the decoys were great. I mean, I've, I've worked with decoys all, all over the world, you know, seal decoys and things like that to try and entice shark attacks and things like that. But this is the first time that the guys had ever bought me sea otters. Uh, and uh, I was one of the last persons to see. I literally didn't see these things until they, until they were presented to me on, on the deck. But I have to say, they were amongst the best decoys that I've ever seen. The, the money had been well spent on these things. Um, they looked like the real deal. And uh, once I saw them, I was like, okay, this is going to be a worthwhile study now or uh, experiment. It's going to be worthy because they were that good. You know, mm. we had a number, I can't remember how, how many we had now, but maybe three or four different ones, various sizes. The aim was to get these things in the water with the sharks and uh, come up with a few different scenarios and experiments to see how the sharks would react differently to those different scenarios. So, for example, we had one just floating on its, on its back, on its own, independently. Then we had a couple together. We covered one in kelp to see if that would make a difference, like what we just discussed. And then at one point, Brandon, my colleague, Brandon McMillan, he took one on a dive and uh, took one mid-water to see if the sharks would be attracted to it in that area of the water. You have to obviously watch the show to see how it all turns out. But it was an interesting idea. And we've got some pretty cool theories about what sharks are doing with otters now. And this was the first time that it's ever been done as well. You know, no one's mm. ever, I've never seen this type of, experiment or anything like this on shark before tell me about 
how the sharks were approaching those decoys uh, differently and which one seemed most attractive to them? Well, the, the ones without the kelp, the kelp definitely seemed to be a, a distraction for the sharks, let's say. I remember the one with kelp, it took a lot longer for the sharks to approach it and then to become comfortable enough to interact with it. Whereas the independent otters, you know, the one on the surface and the midwater one, um, it didn't take half as long for the sharks to, uh, to come and investigate those ones. So there is something with the kelp, but yeah. I still wouldn't fancy my chances. <laughs> How much were you guys able to control against the, the shark's natural tendency to, to investigate things that are thrown from the boat? Like, was there any control against that? I know it's tough where you were. You know, we made sure that there was no bait in the water. You, you'll know Guadalupe Island at that time of the year when we went out there, you, you don't really need bait at yeah. all in any way. There's so many sharks there. Um, sometimes they just approach the, the, the boat on their own. Mm. So this was the case. We, we managed to have a couple of animals around the boat just purely naturally. And, uh, and then we decided to put the otters out. So it was on the shark's terms. It was, I, I don't feel like we were trying to, you know, get something that wasn't quite there or entice the shark in any way using bait. This was a genuine experiment, I should say. That, yeah. uh, and it was, like I say, on the shark's terms. Were the bites similar to what Mike has described? Were they just investigatory? Yeah, yeah. You know, each shark has different personalities. So some of them were, were more cautious than others. Some of them come in and be a bit more bold and take that bite quicker than the other ones but we did find that once they took the bite they soon realized that this wasn't the real deal or it wasn't their natural prey let's say um and they let go but yeah you can see from the footage that even a even a bite from one of these great whites is going to be fatal for one of these otters one of the things that i saw which was really interesting was that you know i would kind of expect a, a great white to release a decoy when there's no blood or fat or anything that it's, it's feeling but that's actually fairly identical to, Mike, what you're seeing with supposedly better-to-eat morsels, right? Right, right. And that's what we think is happening. These sharks are biting otters. Otters don't have that blubber, that high caloric yeah. value that pinnipeds do, and they let it go and move on. So it's, again, getting back to how we're classifying this as investigative. Tell me about the uh, biology of of the otters, like if you bite them like that, are they going to bleed out really quick? Is there going to be a, a big attractant in the water for sharks then? Some do. Uh, some, it's very obvious that the interaction is causes acute mortality, blood loss, tissue damage, organ damage. It's the penetrating wounds, breaks in the integrity of their fur, where uh, these otters then start succumbing to hypothermia or the secondary mm. bacterial infection that develops. The hypothermia one's really interesting to me. Tell me about how they protect against that. Like, how thick is their pelt? Their fur is the densest fur of any animal on the planet. And there's upwards of a million hairs per square inch. They don't have the blubber, to, like pinnipeds, to keep them warm. So they rely on maintaining well-groomed fur that interlocks a layer of air against their skin to maintain their body temperature in the cold environment. So whether it's trauma related to a shark bite that causes a break in that integrity of the fur or oil, small globs of oil that get on that fur to allow the cold seawater to touch skin, that otter's going to start going downhill if it can't maintain that thermal burial with the, the fur. Yeah, I want to make sure I heard that right. You said a million hairs per square inch? <laughs> Roughly, yeah. It varies throughout the body of the animal. Well, that actually leads to one of the things that's interesting looking at some of these wounds. Mm. Often I'll have an otter on the table where the wounds aren't obvious. 
Mm. They're hidden in that dense fur, and you have to really look closely to see the small penetrating wounds. My mind's still thinking about which grad student got to sit there and count a million hairs on a square. <laughs> the bite itself, what we were finding is that, you know, the bite itself from the jaws of the sharks was, was quite delicate, but the, the teeth, you know, they're the things that do the damage. So even if I was to come at you very gently with a steak knife, you know, mm. it's still going to slice you open. So that's, that's what we, certainly we were seeing with the great whites. You know, the bite itself was just a graze. Yeah. But, you know, those, those teeth are just so sharp, you know, and they would just, if you were to run your hand over one of these teeth, it would cut you. Yeah. So just a, small, a small bite from a great white is, is lethal for one of these otters. Yeah. So we've got an endangered species with a very small localised population being perhaps targeted or at least investigated by great whites. But Jimmy and the guys have shown, and you've seen as well, Mike, that the otters are using the kelp as some level of protection. And towards the end of the show, they dropped this notion that perhaps it's also to do with the decline of kelp. And that's what I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's something that needs investigating. I'm really curious about that. So, uh, Mike, can you tell us about the kelp, their protection, and how it might be disappearing? Well, for the most part, a very significant part of the, the shark bit mortality that we're seeing in sea otters is in areas where there isn't kelp. These large, open, sandy areas like Monterey Bay, Pismo mm-hmm. Beach, uh, Estero Bay here in Morro Bay. So there isn't that habitat to provide that, that potential refuge. Areas along the Big Sur coastline where we do have predominant kelp beds, of course, that's one area where there's very few public accessible beaches. We get very few otter carcasses collected in that area. So we don't know what's going on in the, that central part of the range very well in terms of shark-bitten otters or general causes of mortality. The loss of the kelp beds can have a number of influences to sea otter recovery, whether it influences their their prey base or provides uh, protection or lack of protection that the kelp beds are are receding can have influence because, again, it's putting them out in open water where they might be more susceptible to being bit. Explain for me the distinction because you said that there's a lot of the shark-bit otters being found where they're areas of not kelp. What are they doing out there? Is that where they have to go forage? Should they be there and covered by a kelp, or are they being forced away from the kelp to find food? No, it's part of their normal habitat. Otters utilize these open water areas. There's food resources out there, crab and clam, that can support large number of animals. It's part of their normal habitat. Uh, most people do think of otters and associate otters with, with kelp beds. Um, that's where we do tend to see more larger groups, female groups that have a high site fidelity where animals have small home ranges and utilize that kelp bed and the kelp bed resources for their food resource. So the solution isn't necessarily as simple as, hey, we need more kelp beds. Probably not. You know, I think that that idea has been pitched, whether kelp bed restoration projects or doing artificial reefs that might support uh, kelp habitat might provide refuge. I think in the scheme of things, we've got bigger hurdles to, to get over to actually get otters to expand their population range and get into new habitat. Most of this mortality we're seeing related to shark bite is occurring on the range peripheries, on the north and the south range peripheries. So it's limiting the, the growth we'd like to see where otter growths on these peripheries would push into new habitat, start exploring new territory and get into areas where there are some still viable kelp beds. 
those high rates of mortality are just keeping the populations low on the peripheries and we're not seeing that expansion we'd like to see. Yeah. How related is it, do you think, to global warming? Because we've, uh, we've spoken to a number of scientists who are seeing that the ranges of sharks are increasing because the water is staying warmer in certain areas or it's colder in certain areas as well. So the, the traditional habitat where they might, these otters might have been safe way north may not be as safe anymore. So right. is it a global warming thing? I think it certainly could be playing a role. Uh, Monterey Bay being, a, a, I think, a real good example where this question could be investigated a little more because in recent years they're seeing a lot more juvenile white sharks up in uh, the north part of Monterey Bay, mm. an area where, at least my understanding, would be historically water temps in that area wouldn't support uh, these smaller sharks that they're now seeing fairly regularly up in that that section of the coast, which overlaps with otter habitat, and an area that we're seeing very significant shark bitten otters. Well, Jimmy, you've spent time as an otter now. What do you think their chances are in the open water? Well, extremely vulnerable. You know, with like I said, with uh, white shark populations <laughs> on the rise. You know, and and we know from their nature that they're very curious. So. I, I think it's great. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where you, you hear about Shark Week and, you, you know, otters don't really spring to your mind immediately. But I think the, the show has brought this, it's obviously a, a situation going on with them and it's brought that to the forefront. You know, you, you're never going to have an otter week. Um, but if they can kind of jump on the back of the sharks to let this story be known, you know, to, to, to the millions that are going to watch this show, I think it's a good thing. It's an amazing platform for, for this story because there, there is a genuine uh, need for this protection in these areas. Yeah. So, I mean, Mike, he brings up a great point. You know, this, this kind of puts it out into the public eye. And I've certainly learned more about otters than I ever thought I would. Is there a solution to this? I mean, it seems like there's so many factors going against them. Personally, I don't see a solution to, to mitigate this interaction directly. Uh, what it does highlight, in my opinion, is the need that we do need to understand causes of mortality in the Seattle population that we can mitigate because there's nothing we're going to do about this shark-otter interaction, at least that I can think of. So sources of mortality that we might be able to lessen or mitigate completely, and those often get connected to a land-sea transfer of pathogen contaminants pollution that we know are impacting otters things that we can change uh, in our practice on land that will not only help otters but help the near shore you know marine ecosystem health so you think that by stabilizing the population by controlling the human influence from things that we introduce to the water i guess probably even like boat strikes and stuff right is there any boat issues? strikes uh we do have a small number of boat strikes every year and we do have a, essentially a PR campaign, particularly in the start of some of the fisheries when the season opens. We know we're going to have a lot of fishers moving in and out of harbors. We try to make them aware of issues where we have otters that are congregating in, in harbors or harbor mouths to try to lessen that impact. Anything that's anthropomorphic in source of mortality, we're trying to like get the education, get the public educated about it so we can drop those numbers down. Okay, so best case scenario, if we as humans were to be like, okay, we're not putting effluent pathogens, whatever else, into the water, we'll stop all of that, we'll stop all the boat traffic around the otters and just completely eliminate our influence on them. Would the data show that the numbers and the populations would start to recover, despite the sharks? Hopefully. Uh, I guess would be my best answer to that. Uh, again, the, the proportion that are shark bitten now has become so high 
uh, relative to the other sources of mortality. I think anything we can do can certainly help, but it may require some additional human intervention. By that, I mean the idea of trying to aid population expansion in other ways that we might deem necessary. Like a, a breeding program or something like that? Maybe not a breeding program, but, you know, there's rehab programs that are taking in juvenile animals, pups, juveniles that have been separated from mom, rehabbing them, and then releasing them into the wild. Uh, that's a potential stock that could be used to supplement the range peripheries uh, and help build up the numbers on the ends of the range that would hopefully facilitate range expansion. Uh, range expansion is really critical, um, I think, in terms of population growing and reaching our recovery goals. It seems like with enough you know, people out there looking for them, you might actually have a chance to find these wounded otters that have been bitten and rehab them, help them recover, get them into a place where you can treat them so they don't succumb to the sepsis and, and disease, right? Yes, uh, we have recovered uh, live shark bitten otters and they have gone into rehab and successfully rehabbed and released into the wild. So the effort is there. There's a very strong marine mammal stranding network in Central California that does respond to every live stranded sea otter with the attempt of trying to do what we can to to save the individual and bring it back in the wild. Either that or we can always have Jimmy go and make like, you know, a couple million little ghost raft things and just stage them all out across the coastline. That would definitely be a don't try it at home kind of thing. (laughs) But... uh... But uh, it, it's just an interesting concept, isn't it? Like what, what we're talking about here and the whole, the whole balance of nature, really, because we've got these protected areas, which is awesome, you know, up and down California now. But sort of on the, on the negative side, it's having a, you know, a bad impact in this particular scenario for the otters. But obviously on the, on the plus side, you know, the, the white sharks are back and sign of any good, healthy ecosystem are yeah. top predators. So it's uh, the environment's ever changing, isn't it? You know, and it will ever change. It's just just goes to show how small impacts will ultimately make big impacts uh, in the long term. You know, yeah. so um, again, I think it's just great that we highlight it. An interesting concept, an interesting story here for Shark Week. You know, something a little bit different here. I think you're going to get a lot of new people tuning in, especially with uh, you're going to have all the otter fans anyway tuning in. <laughs> but uh, it does bring uh, a little bit more of a different dynamic to it and certainly brings a lot more science to the shows. And uh, I think it's great. It's a concept that when I was first told about, I wasn't quite sure about. But after we went and made it, I was I was well on board with it once I found out about the plight of the otters. You know, it's going to bring this story into people's living rooms. Well, it seems like just like Shark Week, you know, over many, many years now has made sharks very popular and helped with the campaign to protect them and everything else. Maybe you're right. Maybe we're just seeing the Otter Week so that people can learn more about them and, and help protect them. <laughs> we do already have a, a Sea Otter Awareness Week that okay. happens every year at the end of September. That's our big campaign to get out and uh, try to provide outreach education to, to the public. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, is that something we can share with people? When is that? It's generally the last week of September. It's called Sea Otter Awareness Week. There tends to be a a number of public scientific talks uh, in Central California. Organizations like Cal Fish and Wildlife, Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Marine Mammal Center all generally jump on board and try to provide some type of outreach. Great. Jimmy, Mike, I want to thank you for stopping by the Daily Bite. This has been 
highly informative. I've learned a lot about otters and about sharks and that I'd never, never want to be an otter getting approached by a shark. That sounds like it'd suck. <laughs> to everyone at home, thanks for listening and uh, happy Shark Week and happy Otter Week. And if you want to continue hearing from the top shark experts in the world, tune in to the rest of the Daily Bite podcast. Thanks for listening.